If you are new to Jesus, by the way, this, I think this is a good Sunday to be here because, um, because this is kind of hits at the root of everything Jesus was about. And so if you are new and you're exploring who Jesus is, really grateful that you're here. And hopefully today will be a, um, an encouraging yet hard message uh, for one of your first messages to hear about Jesus. Our um, mission, vision for the last number of years uh, is to simply follow Jesus and to follow him into his way, into the path that he has set out for his followers and to just faithfully obey. And this is going to be a hard one today. It's going to be hard. So uh, as we dive into forgiveness, I want to start with one of my favorite uh, images. I've used this a couple times at the church because it's my, one of my favorite movies as a, as a child, but it's the movie War Games. Any fans of War Games? Any of you? Just a few of you? Okay. So, um, so, so Matthew Broderick stars in this movie, and uh, he, his character's name is David Lightman, um, a kid who's a computer whiz from Seattle, and he uh, unknowingly taps into this network that uh, computer network that actually, he's playing a video game, but he actually triggers nuclear warheads to launch from Russia. <laughs> it's a great premise of a movie. And uh, later on, David is at NORAD, and because like the US government gets involved, they're like, what have you done, little teenager? What did you do? And he's like, I don't know what I did. And there's this professor that was kind of in charge of making this computer. And they're trying to teach the computer uh, not to launch nuclear weapons back at Russia. Uh, and so they're, they're, they're trying to say, this is not going to be good. Nuclear war is not good. So how do we teach the computer not to launch the warheads? And so they're finding it really difficult to, to tell the computer not to launch the weapons. But they get an idea. They're like, let's teach the computer to play tic-tac-toe against itself. And if you've ever played tic-tac-toe against yourself, um, you know there can be no winner, right? Because it's you against you, and you know the next move, right? Um, unless part of you is smarter than the other part of you, but whatever. Um, but the computer begins to learn a concept of a no-win scenario, no-win scenario. You can't win at tic-tac-toe, and you cannot win at nuclear war. The world, the globe, does not win with nuclear war. And the computer learns the concept of mutual assured destruction. And so the computer says this to Professor Falcon. Greetings, Professor Falcon. Hello. A strange game. The only winning move is not to play. How about a nice game of chess? And no missiles are launched. Uh, the world is saved. I'm ruining the movie. And Matthew Broderick is a hero, as he is. But today, Jesus will encourage his followers, um, his followers who are tempted to respond to evil with evil, that they need to avoid a way of living that leads to mutual assured destruction. That you cannot win when you play the nuclear war game. That you will end up destroying one another. I get bitter, you get bitter back at me. I sue you, you sue me. I gossip behind your back, you gossip behind mine. I cheat on you, you cheat on me. I give you the silent treatment, you give me the silent treatment. It's nuclear war. It's mutual assured destruction. But today, Jesus will offer his followers, that's you and I, a different way. And it's the way of forgiveness. So let's pray. So Jesus, we thank you for your forgiveness that you've poured out on us. And would we, your followers, be faithful to follow in your footsteps, to be empowered by your gospel, 
to extend forgiveness even to our enemies. And we pray this in your name. Amen. All right, if you have your Bible, let's turn to Luke 17, and we'll read verses 1 to 10. Now, this is going to feel, just so you know, it's going to feel like four different jumbled texts. There's going to be four sections here that you're going to hear and read, and they don't feel like they go together, but they do go together. So let's read these. Jesus said to his disciples, things that cause people to stumble are bound to come, but woe to anyone through whom they come. It would be better for them to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around their neck than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. So watch yourselves. If your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. And if they repent, forgive them. Even if they sin against you seven times in a day and seven times come back to you saying, I repent, you must forgive them. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. He replied, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. Suppose one of you has a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Will he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come along now and sit down and eat? Won't he rather say, prepare my supper, get yourself ready, and wait on me while I eat and drink? After that, you may eat and drink. Will he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we're unworthy servants. We've only done our duty. So this is the word of the Lord. Now, did you notice four sections? They seem a little bit random. Section number one is about this terrifying story about someone with a millstone around their neck thrown into the sea. The second one is about forgiveness of sins. The third is about a mustard tree and a, a mustard seed and a mulberry tree. And the fourth was a parable about a servant who just needs to do the right thing. You see those four sections? How do they go together? It's a little bit of a puzzle, and, uh, but I do believe that they go together brilliantly and that Jesus is the greatest teacher that has ever lived. So if you were with us last week, you'll remember that Jesus told this other story about a rich man who neglected to care for a man named Lazarus. Lazarus had sores all over his body. He was hurting. He was poor. He was hungry. And Jesus' command to us um, and to kind of wealthy religious people was to care for the poor. And of course, people like Lazarus, the poor man, are the kinds of people that were following Jesus. If you'll remember, Jesus brings together all kinds of those who are marginalized, oppressed, the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame, sinners like tax collectors, those on, on the outside. These are the people that are following Jesus. But there's a different group of people, kind of wealthy religious people, that don't want to follow Jesus. And so how will the followers of Jesus respond when they, like Lazarus, get hurt from those who are like the rich man? How will the followers of Jesus respond when they're hurt, ignored, wounded, persecuted, harmed, treated poorly? Or let me ask you, follower of Jesus, when you are hurt, ignored, wounded, persecuted, harmed, or treated poorly, how will you respond? How have you responded? Let's dive in. Verse 1. Jesus said to his disciples, Things that cause people to stumble are bound to come, but woe to anyone through whom they come. It would be better for them to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around their neck than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. So watch yourselves. So part one here is wild, right? This is judgment. This is judgment. Jesus pulls no punches. Judgment is reserved for anyone who will hurt Jesus' little ones. 
Who are his little ones? Well, as we read the New Testament, we find that he uses this little phrase, little ones, for his followers. And that includes children, who are literally little ones. But it also includes his disciples, right? his followers, and all those who are on the margins and poor and oppressed. This, these are his people. So Jesus says this, anyone who will cause one of my little ones, one of my followers, um, to be hurt, uh, to be tempted to go astray, they need to be careful that uh, the judge one day in eternity does not bring a judgment on them that is worse than this, that is worse than a millstone, which is a large stone used in Jesus' day to kind of crush wheat and olives. It was usually pulled by a donkey, massive stone, to be tied around their neck and thrown into the sea. Jesus is saying, if you hurt one of my little ones, beware. There is a judgment that will come upon you that is worse than that. And so right here at the top, I just want to say, meek and mild Jesus... Uh, is warning of judgment. And if you were with us last week, you saw that with the rich man and Lazarus. Be careful how you treat my little one, says Jesus, because you will be judged in eternity. So he's clear. He's a shepherd. Remember that. Remember, Jesus is a good shepherd who protects his sheep. And as I look out in this group, you are his little ones. We're his little ones. He protects us. He loves us. All right. So then he says, now then he turns it's like he turns to his followers, right? And he's saying, okay, so how are you going to respond when you're hurt? If your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. And if they repent, forgive them. Even if they sin against you seven times in a day and seven times come back to you saying, I repent, you must forgive them. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. Okay, so what's our responsibility? Part one, God will do his judgment thing. You and I are not called to put millstones around people's necks and throw them into the sea, just to be clear, right? So that's not our role. That's God's role. What's your role? What's my role? To forgive. To forgive. But the first step he does, or he encourages us with, is verse 3. So watch yourselves. Check yourself. When someone wrongs you, what's the first thing you should do? It's just, okay. Watch myself. <laughs> now it's time to make moves that don't further the escalation, that don't lead to nuclear war, but that leads to the heart of Jesus. So watch yourself. Okay. And Jesus has a passion to teach us how to do this well, which I love. So no war games, no bitterness for years, no gossip. Don't take those paths. Watch your life. Watch yourself. And here's what you do. If your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. All right. Rebuke them. Hey, anyone in the room get excited about that? Rebuke them. You thought he was going to say forgive them, right? That's another step later. First step is rebuke. And any of us who are kind of type A personalities were like, I knew I loved Jesus. Yes, <laughs> rebuke. <laughs> but just a reminder, Jesus came into the world, as the Apostle John says, full of grace and truth. And so you and I as followers of Jesus, we're, gonna, we're never going to hit that right. Is Jesus full of grace and mercy and forgiveness? You bet. But is he a God of truth? Absolutely. Does he have a moral desire for the world? Does he know what right and wrong is? Absolutely. 
And so this is the journey for the follower of Jesus, to walk in grace and truth as we follow Jesus. And so Jesus is clear. You need to confront the person that hurts you. Now, quick caveat, we at North Langley, as we come to understand the heart of Jesus, uh, we don't believe, as we love our neighbor, that we're called to send those who've been abused physically, sexually, back to confront their abuser. Right? I don't think that's what Jesus is getting at. Um, that's difficult. As we walk in community, as we seek wisdom, um, how do we deal with the fact that it's not wise to actually go back to confront your abuser? that it's actually impossible to go back and confront some of the people that have hurt us who are dead. They're not even alive today. It's impossible to confront the person who's a stranger who hurt us, and we don't even know who they are. So there's some caveats here that we need to walk and in community, pray for one another, seek good wisdom. But what Jesus is getting at here, I think, is kind of the main and the plain. Many of us, um, a large percentage of us, are hurt by people that we actually can sit down and have a conversation with. And many of us have been hurt in ways where we can sit down over a coffee and say, that, that hurt. Or, you're hurting others. And, um, and I've come to just have a conversation about that. Because we're, we're brothers and sisters in Christ, and, and, uh, and I'm seeing a pattern that is not good. And... And Jesus is clear, we have a responsibility to do this. And right now, you could probably think of a hundred ways to do it wrong, right? If you're like me, you're like, well, don't do it like that, and don't do it like that, right? So how do we do this well? Well, um, first of all, we acknowledge that conflict is normal in the church. And um, I was just, you know, as you know, hanging out with Aldergrove a few minutes ago. And they're a brand new church, right? Uh, they just started in October. And I said, well, if conflict hasn't already started in Aldergrove, it will, right? Just set your, set your watch, set your timer. Uh, conflict is going to happen, and it's going to happen here too, um, here at Walnut Grove. And so conflict is normal. When we look at Jesus' disciples, they were vying for who would be the greatest, and there was conflict. And we see Paul and Barnabas get into conflict over John Mark, or we see Yodia and Syntyche in Philippians 4. They're in a conflict, these two women in the church. And so some of us want to go back to the early church. We're like, wouldn't it be great to go back to the early church? But Ta-da! You know, conflict was there. It's been a part of the church for 2,000 years. The question for the follower of Jesus is how we navigate that. Navigate that. So, so, so step one is we confront. We confront. We avoid the, the gossip train. We avoid the avoidance train. We avoid the, you know, speaking ill of the person when their name pops up in a conversation. No, we, we go to the person. We go to the person and we say, You've hurt me. Or I can see that you're hurting others. But as we do that, and as we do that well, we need to remember Jesus' own words in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, whenever you approach someone and you try to, what he says, remove a speck in your brother's eye, remember you've got a two-by-four sticking out of your own eye. And it would be good for you to deal with that first. Jesus says this, Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your own eye, when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. And so step one, you and I need to, need to before I confront, before I confront my brother who's hurt me or hurt others, 
I say to myself, is there anything I've done? Is there anything I can confess? How have I contributed to this? And, um, and, we, and I walk in community with others who will help me see some of those things, those blind spots that I have. And then, then I can move in to a, to a, to a, to a hard conversation to point out the sin that I, that I see in my brother. And it's not loving uh, to let sin go unaddressed. And I think Jesus is clear about that. He wants his community to be a people of grace and truth. And so we don't just let, we don't enable, we don't allow sin to just keep going in Christian community. We lean in. We have those difficult conversations. And one thing that I've found really helpful in my own life, something I don't like to do, actually, at all, is to, is to enter in in love uh, as I have a difficult conversation with someone. And um, I don't like to do that because I don't love them, actually, at that moment. I, like to, I don't feel a love for the person. But what I'm reminded of in that moment is that, number one, this person that has hurt me or others is made in the image of God. Uh, they're fearfully and wonderfully made. Okay, that's frustrating, right? Because uh, I want them to just to be a puppet or just a tool or something like that. You know, I don't want them to be human and loved by God. And that the, that the cross is for them, that the blood of Jesus is for them. So, so I'm reminded of that. And so I'm reminded of those things. And, and, and I have to say to myself, Matthew, this is for the good of that person as well as for the good of others. And, and I think then finally, humbly, humbly, uh, we, we enter in and we say, listen, I'm seeing some things that aren't good and I've been hurt and I'm actually watching you hurting someone else. All right, let's keep going. Jesus says, and if they repent, forgive them. Even if they sin against you seven times in a day and seven times coming back saying, I repent, you must forgive them. Okay, well, what is that? Is, Jesus, is that enabling, right? That was my question this week. So now I've done all I can to prepare myself to, 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 to confront the person. Um, and, but then Jesus seems to say, they hurt you seven times, but seven times go, sorry, sorry, sorry. You're not sorry. You can't hurt me seven times in a day and then actually be sorry. It was actually Tim Keller that helped me here. He, he, he provided a great insight. He said, he said, why seven? Why seven? Um, why not six? Why not eight? Well, because Jesus is a Jew. Uh, and 2,000 years ago, the number seven was a number that meant completion, perfection, fullness, wholeness. So Keller argues that what, what Jesus is actually saying is when someone fully, perfectly, completely hurts you, what do you do? I mean perfectly hurts you. You perfectly, wholly, fully forgive them. And you'll need the gospel, and we'll say more about that in a minute. Right? So you've been fully wounded, and we're called to fully forgive. So this is not enabling. I don't think this is enabling. Right? And what is forgive? To release someone from the debt they owe you. Say, you don't owe me anymore. 
I'm tearing up the ledger sheet. All the things I've held against you, you don't know me anymore. It's literally a banking image. It's to wipe the debt on the slate clean, wash it clean. And as I was working on this, I thought to myself, Matthew, have you truly released people from the debt that they owe you? And it didn't take me long to go, nope, I have not. I have not. I have not fully forgiven or fully released people. And that's why the disciples go, we can't do this. Increase our faith, right? Increase our faith. How could we ever do this? And Jesus says, you have exactly what you need. You have what you need. And he goes on to say this in section three. If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. What's he saying? The mustard seed, the smallest seed known to Jesus and his followers at that time, compared to a black mulberry tree, this large tree with a deep root system. Listen, listen to um, Daryl Bach. He says this. The mustard seed was among the smallest seeds in Palestine, while the sycamine tree, probably a black mulberry tree, lived up to 600 years. It required a vast root network to draw up the ground's nutrients. Jesus is arguing that a little faith can do surprising things, especially if merely through a spoken word it can pull up a tree with a huge root system and hurl it into the sea. He's saying this. Jesus is saying, even if you have the tiniest seed of faith, and take the tiniest step to act in the forgiveness of sins. Here's what, here's what I'll do. I'll uproot. I will literally uproot a massive tree of bitterness and pain and lack of forgiveness and sin and all of its messy, complex, deep-rooted system underneath the ground where it's sucking all the nutrients of your life away. I will literally take that tree and I'll throw it in the sea. That's what I'll do. Does that give you hope? So you don't have to have much, have this much. Tiniest mustard seed. I'll throw all that mess into the sea. And just so you know, that'll be better to throw into the sea than the millstone hung around their neck, right? So confront them. Save them from the millstone around the neck and watch God throw neither of you into the sea. Watch him throw that mulberry tree into the sea. And the mess of hatred and bitterness and frustration and anger and gossip and all of it. Tiniest little seed of faith in Jesus. And so what I think Jesus is saying, he's saying, you already have it. You have it. You have exactly what you need. Now practice it. Trust me. What do you do if you're a farmer? Well, you take the seed and you plant it. You don't let it just sit in your hand as a theory. <laughs> I have a theory this mustard seed will do its trick. No, plant that thing. And so he calls you and I to practice it. Now, today, this afternoon with a phone call, over a coffee this week, practice it. Now, you might say something like, well, that's for someone else, clearly, because someone else probably hasn't gone through what I've gone through. And if you know what I've gone through, it's probably worse than what other people have gone through. Or, uh, I'm not that skilled at this, right? And so this is not for me. And Jesus, uh, with the parable, he's going to tell a parable. This is our fourth section. 
And he's going to say, oh, no. No, you're not off the hook. <laughs> this is actually, this is very much for you. And you have a job to do. So he says this. He says, suppose one of you has a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Will he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come along now and sit down and eat? Won't he rather say, prepare my supper, get yourself ready and wait on me while I eat and drink? After that, you may eat and drink. Will he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So you also, when you've done everything you were told to do, should say, we're unworthy servants. We've only done our duty. All right, well, Jesus uh, is not letting any of us off the hook here, right? He describes a servant who's just worked a really rough day, right, Jesus? Come on. Like, he's put a hard day of work. He or she is out in the field working hard. They come home, and the master says, all right, make dinner. That's the parable, just so you know. That's, 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 that's what Jesus is teaching. Make dinner. Hey, you're not done. You're not done. Would Jesus look at me today and say, Matthew, you're not done? You, Matthew, you look at your life and you go, oh, you've, you've worked really hard. Say, so you're not done. You have some people to forgive. So get in the kitchen. Start preparing. Start preparing a meal. Might it look like the communion table? What's, he, what's Jesus saying? He's saying, listen, this is normal in my house. If you're my servant, that day you were baptized, you went down into the water, you came up out of the water, you promised to follow Jesus. Matthew, you, you promised to follow Jesus. Give him your life. Well, this is it. This is the life of the follower of Jesus. It's what it means to live in his house. There's no special trophy for you to do a whole bunch of things, but to not do something that you're required to do. Joel Green says, working for the restoration of the sinner into the community of God's family, practices of this nature are simply the daily fare of discipleship. And we say, we didn't sign up for that. And again, our baptism reminds us, oh yeah, we did. Yeah, we did. Welcome to God's house. This is just normal. Confronting sin, forgiving sin, reconciled relationships, seeing deep-rooted trees of bitterness thrown into the sea. Welcome to following Jesus. This is the normal Christian life. And some of us still have work to do. You know, in Jesus' day, a servant would be a servant because they... Uh, before going into the master's house, would have owed a lot of money. And the master would have paid their debt in full. So then the servant comes and lives in the master's house. That was the way they got out of bankruptcy, right? That they owed a lot of money, and the master paid for it in full. And so now you can start to see what Jesus is saying. We have a master who has given up his life for us at the cross, shed his own blood for us, made payment in full for our sin. And so if you're the servant, you need to do the same. There's work to do. You're not done. And this is what it means to be part of my house. For he who has been forgiven much, much will be required, right? It's called to forgive. And we pray the Lord's Prayer. We say, forgive us our debts as, this is the part we don't like, we forgive those who are indebted to us or who've trespassed against us or who've sinned against us. 
It's just the normal daily part of being in God's house. And so he's saying this, if you're going to be in part of my home, forgiveness of sins is part of the responsibility. And if you have the smallest seed of understanding, watch God move. Watch God throw massive, deep-rooted trees of pain and conflict into the sea. This is simply the bread and butter of being God's people. And it is good, good, good. And so North Langley, let's remember how normal this is. We're going to hurt one another. We need a plan, and Jesus gives us a plan. We're going to hurt one another. We need a plan, and he gives us one. Number one, watch your life. Check yourself. Number two, when someone sins, we rebuke it. We confront it humbly with love, removing the plank from our own eye. And if we're the sinner, then we need to repent and actually walk through a season of repentance, asking for forgiveness. And if we're the ones wronged, we extend forgiveness fully, number seven, completely, perfectly, with the gospel. And number five, then we watch it all thrown into the sea. Hallelujah, the big splash. And it's the normal Christian life, and nothing is special about it. Nothing is new about it. It's simply what it means to follow Jesus. See, repentance and forgiveness is the daily life of the disciple of Jesus. And I want to say to us here, love is messy. There's been a general theme in the last 20 years of my life. I've just noticed that love is messy. This is how we love one another. And we cannot love one another by ignoring the sin, pretending it's not there. There's an urgency to this. There's an urgency. Jesus tells us, don't let things fester. In the Sermon on the Mount, he says, deal with it quickly. Do it. Because if you don't deal with it quickly, you come up with all kinds of weird stories about the other person. Have you ever reconciled with somebody and then you walk away from that meeting being like, oh, they're great. It's weird. I developed these big stories about how evil they were and their intentions and the things that they were thinking about me, and none of that was true, right? And you're like, ah, oh, so that's why we deal with it quickly. We reconcile quickly. I've told this story before a couple times, but one of the most powerful moments of reconciliation happened after myself and an individual who no longer lives here, so um, they're, they're, they're not here anymore, but they, um, I was in conflict, multi-year conflict with them. And one day, they did an amazing thing. They came by the office midweek and sat down and uh, asked for forgiveness um, and poured out their heart. And I was able to understand some things going on in their life. And we just had this amazing conversation. I asked for forgiveness. They asked for forgiveness. It was this beautiful moment. And then um, there was actually someone else with us in the meeting, and the three of us actually took communion together in my office here at the church. We scrambled to look around the church for bread and like Welch's grape juice, <laughs> see if we could find it. We did. We found it. We had this moment of uh, coming around a table and remembering the body and the blood of Christ and, and, and committing no more war games, no more mutual assured destruction. Um, we want peace, peace around this table with the cup and the bread, remembering the work of Christ. Because it was Jesus on the cross who said, or when he was crucified, this happened, Luke 23. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. 
as the Roman Empire drove nails into his body, as the Jewish leadership betrayed him, all Jesus could do was to forgive. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. As Pete Gregg says, our greatest need and God's greatest gift are the same thing, the forgiveness of sin. And so if you're willing, I'd love to do a prayer exercise, one that you could actually repeat on your own if you're willing. We've done this a couple times at the church. This is one of the most meaningful prayer exercises for me when it comes to forgiveness. And uh, it's not mine. I got it from my professor, Daryl Johnson. And so I'd like to share it with you. And so if you're willing, you don't have to do this, but if you're willing, would you close your eyes and join me as we have a moment of prayer. And with your eyes closed, would you bring to mind the person that owes you a debt? This is the person that you have a hard time forgiving. And would you simply tell God their name and tell him how they've hurt you? And be specific. Would you also tell God what you would like to see happen to this person? And be honest. Because he already knows what you think. Now see yourself on top of a hill. You're standing on a hill and you look up. And you find yourself on Mount Calvary. And there's Jesus hanging on the cross. Look at his eyes. See his crown of thorns. See his pierced side. See the blood that runs down the cross. It's a picture of his love for you. And hear him say, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. That's for you. That's for me. Now, if you would, in your mind's eye, just turn around and look at the bottom of the hill. There's that person that hurt you. If you're willing, would you take a little journey down the hill and meet them at the bottom of the hill? And invite that person to come with you back up the hill. And the two of you walk together side by side up the hill. It's a journey. It's hard. But there you are. You stand side by side at the foot of the cross. And now would you point to this person that is now by your side and look up at Jesus 
And would you say this to Jesus? Jesus, do for them what you've done for me. Give them what you've given me. Forgive them the way you've forgiven me. Love them the way you've loved me. And I believe Jesus says this. I will. I'll do exactly that. And I love you. I believe Jesus looks in your eyes, his little one. His little one who's faithfully come with a little mustard seed of trust. And he sees you and he loves you. He's so proud of you. Amen. Plainly, that's hard to do. But step one, we learn to pray for them. And as we learn to pray for our enemy, we come around a table. So would you take the cup and the bread? And in 1 Corinthians 11, we read this. The Apostle Paul writes to the church and he says this, for I have received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat the bread together. After supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's drink together. Let's stand together. grateful for our worship team is going to lead us in one song yeah and uh they ran out of songs but they're gonna they're gonna do this one we'll find out what it is and um just during this one song i know we're running out of time but like our prayer team's going to be here they have a heart to pray for any of you who would like for them to come alongside you and you don't have to say the name of the person but just say i'm having a hard time forgiving someone can you join me in prayer our prayer team would love to pray with you to encourage you um, our prayer team also said a theme of today would just be prayer for physical healing. If any of you need physical healing, would you come forward and go to our prayer room? They'd love to pray. But we want to end our time here as we pray. Forgive us our debts 
as we also have forgiven our debtors. And we pray that, Jesus, would you show us how to forgive the debts of our enemies, of those who have hurt us, Lord, because we have been so forgiven by you. We love you. We give our little seed of faith and trust to you. Would you show us how to plant it? Would you plant it for us? May it grow to be something beautiful. We love you. Amen.